You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. And he's Professor of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising subject oozing with unexpected historical significance. And this week it's tears, 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 tears. (laughs) Which is all about child-rearing and swaddling clothes and whether or not it's okay for grown men to cry. No, it's not. It's all about art galleries and Charles Dickens. Everyone knows that. (laughs) If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected at Unexpected Podcast, spelled P-D-C-S-T. We are proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other great shows coming soon. And you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months. You can read show notes, watch video clips, look at photos of everything we discuss, and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 28 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio googling through history, exploring the histories of things that you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like rhinos, onions, or the chair. Onions? Yeah. We're going to do onions? Well, we're doing the we're doing crying, aren't we? We're okay. doing tears. Already. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history, and crucially... How those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of chimneys was in fact all about the history of diet? <laughs> it's about cooking food. Okay. And the history of silence is all about the history of repression and evasion. That sounds fascinating. I'm really interested in the history of silence. It will be good. Yeah. Religion. Praying. Hmm. You're being silent now. I see, silent. I see what you're doing. Yes. The man sitting opposite me is the colossus of cultural history. It's oh. Professor James Daybell. Too kind. You're too kind. And the man sitting opposite me is the pastor of past times. It is the wonderful Dr. Sam Willis. And together we will be piloting you on this uncharted and frankly highly dangerous flight into the past. Each week one of us will take the lead and this week it's your turn. Tears. This is our third 
in a series on blood, sweat and tears. And today we are doing, we're doing tears. <laughs> what, where do we go with the history of tears? Oh, so history of tears. I was really excited about this. I changed my mind several times. Hmm. I was going to do the history of tears in art. I was really interested in that. And I try to find out the earliest depictions of crying in art. But um, I found some other things which I was more interested in. But generally, for me, it's to do with history of emotion, isn't it? It's Ah, to do with loss. It's to do with pain. It's to do with just sort of being in touch with emotions and what makes humans human. It's a massive subject. It's very exciting. I have just read Thomas Dixon's brilliant Weeping Britannia, a portrait of the nation in tears. Mm. So I'm full of stuff about tears. But when we think about the cultural history of tears, how do we start thinking about that? I suppose it's about when you cry, it's about how you cry, it's about why you cry. It's about the... And obviously how that's changed over time. And how that's changed over time. We can talk about a chronology of tears. Oh, that's, that's You know, nice. a chronology of crying. We can gender that, so we can talk about how men and women cry. We can look at it over the life cycle. We can look at babies crying and that kind of history of childhood and child rearing and how that's changed. We can think about the reasons that people cry, the places that they cry. You know, do people cry in private, which probably is is more real than necessarily than people crying in public. And when do you cry? Yeah. And why do you cry? You can think about this from a sort of scientific perspective as well. Do you think in terms of broad historical sweeps and narratives, do you reckon some ages were more tearful than others? Yes. Can we say that? Yes, we can. Do we know or enough the, about the past? We, we know enough about the past. That's Absolutely. interesting. So I'd say it's a fairly new strand of cultural yep. history, this, isn't yep. it? So I think if we were doing this only a handful of years ago, historians would be able to say... There are periods where people were more teary than they are now, but we don't really know which ones. But um, it's actually kind of narrowed down and become more focused. It's about cultural understandings of emotions. The history of emotions over the last decade has really taken off. You know, people are interested in affect, so affection and love, and they're also interested in things like fear, anger and sorrow and sadness. Mm -hmm. So the history of tears is something that we can chart, you know, from the Bible. Jesus wept, you know, all the way through to Paul Gascoigne breaking down in, in tears after missing a goal in a football match. So it's a physical manifestation of emotion, and that's what yeah. I think excites us both about it as a subject. Yeah. And why do you cry? You know, is it a response to pain? You know, do you cry in order to elicit some kind of response from somebody else to get sympathy out of that? Is it some sort of form of outlet or release for tension? You think about the sort of the public grief that was expressed at Diana's. death and Diana's funeral and you had crowds on the street just erupting into personal grief it was a sort of a national mood connected to something that was cathartic that was a release of the sort of mood of the nation and then there's there's crying and crying isn't there there's sort of a personal tear because you're very sad by yourself and there's the sort of out loud howling which is a bit like speaking in tongues it's about people being utterly overcome with grief which is what we did essentially as a nation when diana died and it it became kind of massively over the top and that's that's crying as a symbolic act yeah in a it's you know it's an entirely kind of separate part of it and but now i've said that feels very victorian to me doesn't it their relationship with grief was unique in its own way I think probably led by Queen Victoria, you know, those wonderful photographs of her in in her mourning dress. And also, I think if we think about it, we're sitting in the UK, we're sitting in England. There is a sort of reticence connected to Englishness, stiff upper lip that emerges at that period where sort of public 
manifestations, you know, showcasing grief in that sort of public way is not the done thing. And I think that was not the same in the past. That's a relatively new phenomenon. Absolutely. So what I'll start with is what you were asking earlier on. Can we map a sort of chronological history of the tear or of tears? Okay. And I think we can. If you look at the Bible, it's full of examples of people crying. The medieval world, you are falling over yourself, you know, with finding people crying. And certainly images of people crying. And certainly images. The medieval female mystic, Marjorie Kemp, is crying all the time. (laughs) You know, there are uncontrollable tears when she worships and she thinks of God, and these tears are a way of, you know, of of expressing her devotion. So that kind of imagery, you know, popes and bishops are crying. You then have the Reformation. And I'm talking in very sort of broad brushstroke terms, but the Reformation, the rise of Protestantism leads to something that is more stoic. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a kind of inward degree of control. You know, it's much less okay to sort of publicly show emotion, to grieve in that kind of way. By the 18th century, with the rise of sensibility, you know, again, it's actually okay to start crying. The French Revolution whacks that on the head because people become sort of suspicious of that kind of sensibility and, you know, become more sort of withdrawn and more controlled of their emotion. But by the 19th century, with the rise of the empire, that sort of form of control, controlling your your emotions, not crying, particularly as a man, becomes a way of sort of controlling the empire. So the tear, the history of tears, is in fact connected to the stiff upper lip and, yeah. and English colonial rule. There's the big narrative. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things about this is we both immediately jumped on this idea of tears linked to the history of emotions. Yeah. Simply, I think, because we find it fascinating and it is a sort of a new path in cultural history at the moment. And so, rather belligerently, I'm quite interested in doing the opposite of that. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so, there is so much material about the history of emotions and it is such an exciting field. But one of the great things about this, I think, are the early explanations for tears. And I'm thinking mm. 19th century stuff, Darwin particularly. And everyone thinks of Darwin, Origin of the Species, and he's very famous for everything he got right. Okay, And so for me, Tears is all about what Darwin got wrong. Uh, Go on. Okay, Uh, he wrote a wonderful book, which if you haven't read it, you should read it. It's much better than anything else Darwin wrote. And it was called Some Theories Regarding the Function of Emotional Tears. And that is in, it's the expression of emotions in man and animals. Brilliant. um, By Darwin. And if you (laughs) check out these chapter titles... Oh, these are some of the illustrations in this extraordinary book. The expression of the emotions in man and animals. Small dog watching a cat on a table. Dog approaching another dog with hostile intentions. Dog caressing its master. Cat savage and prepared to fight. Cat terrified at a dog. Chimpanzee disappointed and sulky. <laughs> so these are some of these fantastic illustrations from this book. It's actually slightly off, off the subject here, but that's the whole point of this podcast. This book is a milestone in the history of illustrative books Mm. and darwin was doing things that no one had ever done before trying to illustrate emotions in humans and animals right so the point about darwin okay is he gets it wrong he never mentions emotions when he talks about tears he doesn't offer well he does he he offers an evolutionary explanation but it is devoid of emotion and the primary function of the secretion of tears with some mucus is to lubricate the surface of the eye and a secondary one as some believe is to keep the nostrils damp so that the inhaled air may be moist and likewise to favor the power of smelling 
But another and at least equally important function of tears is to wash out particles of dust or other minute objects which may get into the eyes. So there's very little emotional there at all. And he actually, he's very specific about this. We must look at weeping as an incidental result, as purposeless as the secretion of tears from a blow outside the eye or as a sneeze from the retina being affected by a bright light. Mm. And when I came across this, I suddenly thought, I I couldn't think of another example where someone's actually written down Darwin got that, you know, he's got that wrong. It makes you sort of open up the crazy box of Darwin himself, who was a truly fascinating person. And one of his experimental subjects were his children. Oh, where are you going with this? As a scientist, as a sort of research investigator, he wrote to other investigators and researchers all over the world. And he was very, very good at that. But he also writes beautifully about his children in a fantastically unemotional way, Mm, which makes mm. a lot of what he then writes about tears make complete sense. Mm. He studies the facility for weeping in his children when they're babies. I first noticed this fact, he wrote, from having accidentally, on purpose, I think, Mr Darwin, (laughs) (laughs) brushed the cuff of my coat against the open eye of one of my infants when only 77 days old, causing this eye to water freely. And though the child screamed violently, the other eye remained dry or was only slightly suffused with tears. So he concludes that crying requires some practice. But one of the wonderful things about Darwin is if you actually read all of his diaries and you actually you look into him as a man, is somewhat removed from the emotional kind of side of his family. He writes about everyone as if they're scientific subjects Mm. and observations. And so his conclusion about crying not being an emotional one is actually very Darwin. It's not surprising. It's completely normal and it makes sense. Now, what is really good about this is he tackled this guy called Duchenne, who was a French bloke. He believed that there were only a certain amount of emotions that could be expressed by the face. And he combined two things which are very much of the year, photography and electrical impulses. Basically, he electrocuted people's faces. He manipulated their muscles with electricity to try and recreate a simple number of emotions. Um, And I'm now going to really... You're not going to hook me up to an electric... No, but I wish I could. (laughs) I wish I could. Okay, hang on. Not not in a nasty way. (laughs) This is the best photograph I've ever seen. Oh, my word. Okay, so what we've got here? (laughs) This is Duchenne. Goodness me, we have a a sort of doctor man putting electrodes on a man's head and the man looks like he's in a straitjacket so he can't move and an electric shock is being applied to him and his mouth is wide open in what looks like panic. (laughs) I think we've caught him mid-scream. Shock and fear. So th- these are some of the other ones he did. And this is one of his experimental subjects. He did this on children, did this on women. And this is his old man subject. And he is exactly like he's a- applying electricity to try and mobilise the muscles in the face, which he thinks are a window into the soul of man. Goodness me. Right. So, so um, tears to the window. Windows into the soul, soul of man. Carry the, on. The point about this, it is specifically, scientifically not emotional in the way that we are discussing emotions before there was a victorian way of trying to understand emotions and what's interesting about this is darwin studied this bloke's research and disagreed with it yeah he did very very early experiment he took a lot of duchenne's slides which were said to illustrate surprise fear anxiety anger whatever it might be and he showed them to 
people who came around his house. Mm. What do you think that is? What do you think that is? What do you think that is? And they all reply, you know, some of them were easy, he's happy. You know, otherwise, you know, he's in pain, he's whatever else is wrong with it. But he couldn't make the people who came around his house agree on what emotions the face was demonstrating. I mean, one of the things that strikes me looking at these is that there is a sort of clown-like quality to some of them. I don't know whether you picked that up as well, but, you know, they have these sort of... Almost a sort of grotesque clown-like quality. Yes, I mean, very much so. Well, it's a kind of a performance, isn't it? Yeah. And it's very unnatural. Even if you look at the ones of them trying to be happy, it looks like someone yeah, who's very, someone's... very sad, yeah. who's, been, yeah. who's been paid to look happy. Yeah. And that you realise that tears can lie. You can cry crocodile tears, can't you? And that's not something we've talked about. No. You know, it's pretend- we'll get there. It's pretending to be sad when you're not. But yeah. this is very much the yeah, case. Yeah. This bloke's been paid to be operated on. He's supposed to look surprised. And hey, actually, <laughs> he's genuine. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Only fearing for his life, I think. Yeah, he has a strange man electrocuting him. Yeah. I want to rewind this back a little bit to Darwin, and then I want to take it off in two directions. One is about this idea about the sort of science behind tears. You know, if we think about this in sort of scientific terms, there's this sort of neuronal connection between the sort of tear ducts and between a part of the human brain that is connected to emotion. So when you have a particular sort of experience, that's what triggers the tears. Where Darwin comes into this is that the book that you were talking about, The Expression and Emotions of Man in Animals, is basically saying, does this apply to animals? And I think the stuff that you were talking about was fascinating. Another aspect of it, there's a bit in it where he's sort of interviewing the keepers of Indian elephants in London Zoo, and they tell him that they actually cry, Mm. and that they are, in fact, shed tears of sorrow. So there's a really interesting kind of sort of history of emotions in animals there as well that I think, you know, would be fascinating. Camels cry. Camels cry. Camels cry. Do dogs cry? Does no. Mo cry? No, Mo, little Mo. Mo. He doesn't sweat no. either. That's interesting. Mean. No, he pants. He has he? blood, though. He does have so pants, he, yes. he has blood. <laughs> <laughs> so we should have talked about him <laughs> yeah. a couple of podcasts He should have featured before. in all of yes, three. Yes, yes, yes. Mo's my spaniel, if you want Yes, wondering. and my daughters love him. <laughs> so the other way that I want to take this is the childhood route. Okay. And babies crying. Nowadays, you know, if we think about the attitudes towards children crying... Child-rearing practices have a very long and interesting history. I mean, we are now in a period where parents are really very reluctant. We have very sort of liberal child-rearing attitudes. Parents are very reluctant to let children cry, although controlled crying, you know, is espoused by certain child psychologists, uh, but a lot of parents can't deal with that. But this idea of children's crying has a sort of long and interesting history. 
And there are different ways in which a child might cry as well. So you have your sort of basic cry that basically means, eh, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. Hello. Uh, which, which we all, I mean, we are, we're both fathers and, uh, and are quite used to children who in the past have, have cried. Then you have a cry that's associated with pain and an angry cry. And, that, you know, intuitive parents, particularly mothers, can distinguish between this. If we take this back to the sort of 16th and 17th century, of course, we always come back to this, <laughs> to this period, uh, since it's a period of which I profess in history. But uh, what's interesting there is early modern attitudes to it. And um, we've got various sort of tracts that survive, books by midwives that talk about this. And crying was an important part of how you could actually tell whether you had a healthy baby or not. You know, a newborn baby was supposed to cry. And biologically so, it was supposed to cry because in the womb it was sort of got full up with all this sort of humoral badness, the mm. sort of phlegm and, and whatever. And so a baby coming out and crying, that was part of, you know, of actually admitting that, getting rid of it. If a baby sort of continued to cry several days later, you, that was when you got worried. You know, there was a fear that it would actually be damaging for the baby, that the baby's bones were too weak. So, you know, the history of crying and parental attitudes and child-rearing habits is innately connected to yeah. to the history of tears. Yeah, it's the history of signalling, isn't it? It's signalling yeah. there's something right or there's something wrong. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all to do with the history of communication. It's a form of communication. And if you think about interpersonal relationships, yeah. how do people use tears to communicate? Yeah. We're not talking about public tears and public grief, which we can talk about in a little bit, but we're talking about how tears can be used between husband and wife, between siblings, yeah. you know, parent and child. So that's crying in terms of a relationship between two humans. Yeah. I've come across something which is fascinating and one of the most interesting things I've read for some time. Go for it. I'm going to read a little bit about this. It's by a guy called James Elkins, a book called Pictures and Tears. Let me just read you this story. It's a recollection of someone who is recounting a sad moment in exile in the Second World War. So in Nice, 1942, in the Rue de France, there was a store which, if it still exists, is now probably called a gallery. On that particular day, there stood in the left window a painting of pleasure boats in a small harbour. Beyond it, there was another painting in which the sky was overcast. There was a tree with meagre foliage and part of a blind wall to the right. There was an abundance of ochre and grey. It was by somebody called Utrillo. The name went nothing to me. I was 19 then and didn't know much about painters. But all the dullness and the dramness of the northern Bonlieu of Paris, which is where she was from, oozed from the picture. When I tore myself away from the contemplation of the painting and climbed back on my bicycle, I discovered I couldn't see properly because my eyes were full of tears. So this is a book about the history of people crying in front of paintings, mm. which is a narrative that I'd never considered before. But that's a really fascinating idea. It isn't symbolic because there's no one there to witness it yeah apart from a painting you are responding to an inanimate object you're responding to all sorts of things there are plenty of letters in here this is another one from 1967 describing a visit to florence um, i visited florence for the first time with other students from the university of amsterdam because i was very young everything in florence made a big impression on me especially the medici chapel and she goes to look at michelangelo as if time stood still i remember the stillness in there i remember that i felt very much at home after an hour i left the chapel crying my husband was puzzled and asked why i cried and i stammered it's just so beautiful and it's a book full of letters about people crying mm. in front of paintings and the big theme about it is that we don't cry in front of paintings anymore. No. We used to, and it's now changed. 
there are all sorts of reasons for that which are positive but i think the idea here is it's the identification of lost behavior mm. it might be simply that we are just exposed to so much visual material nowadays and if you go and see a van gogh or something like that it's oh yeah. it's just another yeah. painting and i certainly think the experience of going to galleries is a major part of it i went to the british museum yesterday did you cry I was really cross because I didn't cry, but I saw something which meant a great deal to me. It was the most important surviving depiction of a bireme, right? It's a type of early galley. I mean, it's from Assyria and it's 700 BC, right? And it's a tiny fragment of it. It had been damaged, it had been stolen. Now it's now hanging up on a wall in a kind of remote corner. You know, Mm. as far as I'm concerned, it should be in a massive white room all by itself and there Mm. should be... Mm something significant about what it was. And there like was a, the Vassar ship There was something a like tiny yeah. fragment just right. not really telling you very much about it. And it was surrounded by, I don't know, 500 astonishing artefacts from Syria, Iraq, Egypt. Mm. And I think you are just bombarded so much in modern galleries and museums now by sheer quantity of material. And this very much relates to paintings as well. You don't have the chance for an artefact to actually have the kind of impact on you that you need it to have. Mm. And time is crucial to that. You also have the way that museums and galleries are. It's all very bright light. It's all very busy. You're being jostled. You also think we don't know how to view view things now. We don't know how to look at things. And and we don't, you know, it's the power of art to move. I mean, I think about the artistic forms that bring me to tears. And literature can do that. Okay. For me, it's music. Music I find incredibly emotionally evocative. Yeah. And it's particularly when it's music that's associated with something that's happened in the past. Films can do it. As I get older and I have children, there are certain themes that kind of trigger certain kind of responses like that. I mean, I think it's the same with art, but often you're imbuing your own concerns and experiences into a painting. So if you might go and see a painting at a troubled time in your life, and then you might go and see it again 20 years later and you recall those emotions that you had at the time. It's very easy to imbue inanimate objects with things like that. Yeah. But paintings particularly, I think it's also very linked with history and the passage of time. Yeah. So if you go to an art gallery, unless it's a modern art gallery, 90% of the stuff you look at is going to be painted by a dead artist. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're looking at is a snapshot in their life. Mm. Turner's a cracking one. Um a lot of his art when he was a young man is very kind of happy. It's very positive. And as he starts painting when he gets older and he approaches retirement, he becomes ill. It becomes much more morose and he deals with much more depressing subjects, essentially. Mm, But mm. you are then aware of you're viewing a snapshot in an artist's life. You know what happens to him next. And you have that kind of privilege. And if it was something bad, if his guy dies or the lady dies in a couple of years' time, you're kind of burdened with this knowledge of the passage of time. And that can be very upsetting for some people. So if you you look at a picture of extreme beauty, but you will have a very troubled time at the moment, that can be upsetting. But also you have this this concept of time passing in that you feel for the person who actually painted it. I think we don't know how to view. I think museums and galleries now are not set up to allow you to do it properly. No, it's a field that is emerging. I think there's an application of scientific sort of measurement of the emotions that I think, you know, is ripe for taking into gallery spaces and trying that out watch this space it's a, it's a, it actually is a project i'm thinking of well scientific measuring of emotions goes back yeah. to duchenne and his electrocution yeah. of people's yeah. faces when actually yeah. you can't you, i know there are lots of apps and stuff they claim to be able to measure by how you look or yeah. your body language yeah. how yeah. you feel and that's just not true actually it's also related to sweat they, can, they, they can measure your sweat yeah hmm. so we should have done that when we did sweat mm. i want to take this Lie i want to take this in two other directions first is grief and crying at 
funerals mm-hmm. and that kind of outpouring. And it makes me think of um, the character Merceau in Camus' The Outsider, the L'Etranger, The Stranger, and his response to his mother's death is just non-emotional. He's just not moved by it at all. And I think the idea is that you are supposed to find that strange and odd. And I think going from there to look at how culturally, how societies across the world have approached grief is absolutely fascinating. And you think Eastern traditions where public wailing and sort of pulling of hair and sort of hitting mm. hitting oneself, it, you know, is all part of the sort of correct response to somebody dying. Whereas in an earlier English tradition, in the emotional response to somebody dying, you know, you were allowed to cry, but immoderate grief was seen as sort of more, more or less akin to madness. So it was something that should be controlled. I think that's a really interesting subject. The other thing that I think is fascinating is about male tears. And there's been some research done recently by a, a German institute where they have estimated that on average women cry between 30 to 64 times a year right? versus men who cry 6 to 17. Hmm. You know, what is it about gendered codes of behaviour that make it more appropriate for women to cry, less appropriate for men? Certainly in, in today, there's this sense that, that it's associated with effeminacy with weakness you know and there's a famous sort of thomas hobbes passage that talks about crying as very much a sort of feminine pursuit and he sees crying in very negative terms and that it's something that's associated with powerless members of society women and babies it wasn't something you did as a man yet somebody like oliver cromwell was known to sort of be a, a blubber and he was a hard man. And he was a hard man. The very man. definition yeah. of a hard yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But I was thinking about this around the time of the Olympics when Nick Skelton won the gold. And you could see in his face, he was obviously incredibly emotional having done this. You know, he's in his 50s. You know, he's worked at this all his life. He's come so close. He's got this success. And his face was a picture because he was trying to master that kind of emotion and what does that tell you about upbringing and control and, and needing to sort of control that versus somebody like um you know paul gascoigne we mentioned earlier on or even for andy murray mm-hmm. to break down on center court wimbledon so i think there's this really interesting discussion about the history of tears and emotion and controlling emotions that we can map chronologically we can map in terms of gender you know differences between male and female we can map over life cycle babies we can map geographically that there are significant (laughs) cultural differences so tears is in a sense a really powerful lens it seems like something that's very ephemeral and rather silly but in effect it's a really powerful lens to look at all kinds of history. Mm. I think that's been my favourite podcast so far. I'm really proud of that one. We should high five. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> that's very good. So, um, Tears, that's taken us absolutely everywhere, from Darwin being cold and deliberately poking his children in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> to sad elephants. To sad elephants, yes. So I'd like you all to wail, gnash your teeth and pull your hair because the you're upset because the podcast is finished. But it doesn't really have to finish. You can get in touch. You can keep it going. Tell us about your histories of tears. Share with us your thoughts and your stories. Bye. Bye. 
If you enjoy this podcast and you like learning about the past, check out my latest venture. It's called History Masterclass, and it's a new type of historical event where you can actually learn in person from the best historians around today in unique and stunning historical locations. You can find out more at thehistorymasterclass.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And follow on Facebook and Twitter at The History MC.